Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finneran, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Today is Monday, October the 11th, and this next hour we study the inspired and true Word of God and put on our Christ goggles in Leviticus chapters 23 and 24. We'll be going through tons of verses, but part of it is because a lot of this is a review. Everything we've gone through to this point has told us of many feasts and different laws, and a lot of those will be rehashed today. Maybe not necessarily trying to figure out every little word and what it means, but ultimately, how does it point us to Christ? Why did they do it then? Why don't we do it now? And how does this, what does this mean for us as God's holy people, as our Lord is holy, as we hear throughout the book of Leviticus? For today, the gifts are ready, ready for you. A special thanks to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. To help us to be strengthened by God's Word, we welcome Pastor Matt Knaus of Community Lutheran Church in Escondido and San Marcos, California. Uh, Pastor Knaus, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be with you and um working through God's Word with you. Thank you very much. This is our, Pastor Canales, this is our first time together. So we probably even need to hear a little bit, well, first of all, about yourself, about your family, and, and then tell us more about Community Lutheran Church. Sure. So I am a second career pastor, so I've not been a pastor for very long, just over three years now, and graduated from Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. And I have a wonderful family, a wife and three children. Uh, we live out here in Southern California, and we're kind of born and raised out here in Southern California. So uh, you get to talk to a uh, born and raised West Coast guy today. <laughs> and <laughs> There's not many of you on this program, so congrats, yeah. <laughs> that's all right. There weren't many that wanted to head out this way, and I kind of raised my hand and said, that's fine, I'll take the spot. Um, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, before going into ministry in this way, I was working in restaurants. And so I had graduated with a bachelor's in sociology and had no idea what to do with it. So I went to culinary school and uh, cooked for five years, sold wine for five years, managed at a restaurant uh, for about four years. And throughout that time, my family and I served within our home church. Uh, in Ventura, California, with Pastor Koch, and before that, Pastor Yaskelkis, and both great men of the faith uh, that guided, really guided me on this path towards being a pastor. Um, pastor Koch one day just said, hey, you should be a pastor. And I said, no. <laughs> and then nine months later, I was taking Greek with Dr. Veltz, and I was trying to figure out how I got there. But um, it all just kind of worked out to where the Southern California family ended up in the middle of Missouri, and thank God for it every day. And this is something that's really fun to hear, because as you know, the, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is going through a very comprehensive church work recruitment program, just trying to present the gifts of being a pastor, of being a DCE, of being a teacher, and the other vocations that we have to serve the Lord and to serve God's people. And it's really fun to hear of the, the various backgrounds, because for me, basically, I, I I went to college, and I knew I wanted to be a pastor, but then I got a degree in health fitness, and then went to straight to seminary. And it's always amazing to me to hear 
of guys and gals who end up, you know, doing some kind of vocation in the church when that was not the plan. And, and you know, you went to culinary school and did that for a while, and, and the Lord grabs a hold of you and takes you in. And it, literally, you know how you got there, but you, you wonder what just happens sometimes when you're sitting in Greek class, no doubt about it. <laughs> so it yeah, is. yeah, I went from serving bread and wine to serving well, bread and wine. I guess that part of it really didn't change all that much. I love it. I love it. That's so um, good. But yeah. And so to any of you guys out there that are in your mid-30s, that's about what I was when I went to seminary. I was 38 with a family of three children. And uh, we uprooted and went and God guided the entire way. I love it. Well, thank you for joining us today. Obviously, when you were in the midst of, uh, of serving in the restaurant business, you were captivated by Leviticus chapters 23 and 24 before you became a pastor. So I'm excited that you're with us because you, didn't, didn't you say you read Leviticus every single day? Oh, man, you have no idea how much Leviticus comes up in common <laughs> table conversation when uh, you're speaking with folks. <laughs> That's not true. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, <laughs> Pastor. This was a new venture for me, I so I'm excited. I'm excited as well. So, Pastor, as we as we dig into God's Word, as we know it is indeed true and points us to Christ, can you ask the Lord's blessings for us and begin our time in prayer? Absolutely. We pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be grounded in your Word where you continually point us to Christ. We pray you work by your Holy Spirit in our conversation that for all those that would hear of our banter and fun as we walk through some sometimes confusing texts, we see where you continually point us to Jesus. As you have graciously given us a way to be in your presence uh, for the people of Israel uh, of the early days through all of the sacrifices and feasts and now through Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you guide our conversation, lead us, hold on to us in your grace and mercy for us in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Reminder to our listeners, if you have any questions concerning Leviticus, I'm talking from chapter 1 all the way to today, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, and we'll try to answer that the best that we possibly can. There are many times that as we look at each little detail, it takes some further study. That's why uh, we invite you to send an email to be able to have me or Pastor Knaus or others to, to look at it further and then maybe answer it through that email or maybe on a future program. But today, Pastor Knaus, as we look at chapters 23 and 24, we are near the end. Uh, not quite there. And today, I did read one commentary that kind of talked about how this was a, a full comprehensive review of basically everything that's kind of popped up throughout our time. And so uh, what, ways, what, way, what do you want to highlight as we begin our study to start us off on the right foot? Absolutely. So if there was one word that I would use uh, or one phrase that I would use for what we're looking at today, it would be rest in God's presence. Uh, because it's really what all of these feasts point towards. And as we've seen the movement through Leviticus, it seems to be coming closer and closer and closer to this presence of God, but it doesn't make sense for sinners to be able to be in that presence. And so Leviticus seems to answer that question of how can sinners be in the presence of this holy and unique and wonderful God? You know, so really the idea in these chapters, or at least chapter 23, uh, is 
what does that rest look like and how does it shape our lives? And that's really helpful. Wow, that is really helpful. And, I, and I'm not trying to appease you here as I say that is because the common <laughs> okay theme. You want to. That's right. I can appease you all day long. I can patronize you. Um, is the reality that Dr. Kleinig, when we started this whole thing, you know, who, who wrote the commentary on Leviticus, has talked extensively about how it comes down to showing us how God is holy and how he shares his holiness with his people. And we look at that with forgiveness, obviously in the account of Christ, and then to be able to look at that in the same way of to give us rest. And that, that's something that um, this is what the Day of Atonement is about. This is what uh, a lot of these laws are about, is to give our conscience rest to know how can I not be like Nadab and Abihu in chapter 10, where they get destroyed because they eat the, they do the wrong thing. They're destroyed, and he says, you know, I'm here for my people. I will give them rest by showing them what to do, who I am, and to remind them once again that they can rest in me. I think that's a perfect way for us to piggyback off that holiness theme and to look at rest. Thank you for that insight. Any, anything else that you want to highlight? I mean, you said that boils down to that, but anything else you want to um, highlight before we begin? Sure. I mean, just first off, uh, as looking at resources, you mentioned Dr. Kleinitz's commentary, which is a treasure trove uh, mm. for walking through Leviticus. Uh, on a smaller scale, I actually used a couple of reference or a couple of resources from the Bible Project as well, mm-hmm. and they had some great graphic ways to be able to look at the layout of the book of Leviticus as well as some great content. Um, and then, of, of course, walking through Scripture in the Study Bible, you know the LCMS Study Bible is very helpful too. Uh, but as we look at this book, I I love too. I heard as you mentioned, you know that Day of Atonement. And if you look through Leviticus, just the general outline of the book, the Day of Atonement is central. Mm -hmm. Chapters 16 and 17, they're absolutely central to the entire book. And it is very interesting how the themes of rituals, priests, and purity come up on as bookends on both sides of the Day of Atonement. And so I I really encourage folks to look at that grand arc of how the book is constructed and to see how God writes through in a very orderly manner to center us in atonement um, that brings us into his presence. And you're exactly right. When, when, uh, see, on October 1st, Pastor Dustin Beck and I, he's from Texas, um, we studied Leviticus 16, Day of Atonement, and that was a really common theme that Pastor Beck um, focused on. Something that I learned a lot about as we were going through it is not only is it a central point because it answers the question of, okay, uh, obviously there's a lot of rules here, but what do I do about those sins I don't know about? What do I, what do, I do about this? Where's my hope? How, how can my conscience be clear in the midst of this? And the Day of Atonement gave that, which ultimately points us to Jesus. I mean, it, there's some cases where you read and you're not quite sure how this points me to Jesus. Um, but that one was a very clear one. And crazy enough, Holy Spirit, God's at work. It's right in the middle of the book. And how could a day of atonement not give you rest? Because when you're done with that day, you know your sins are forgiven. How could you not go home that night with extra dose of peace, knowing that you're forgiven because of the sacrifices that were made? Anything else? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, as you look at those two lambs that were used on the Day of Atonement, one to take the sins away from the people and the other one to die on behalf of the people and give them life. Mm. 
yeah. you know, through how God set it up in those sacrifices. And then you hear John the Baptist. Here comes the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. You know, it's like both those lambs of the Day of Atonement wrapped up in the person of Jesus. And I and think that's it's truly beautiful. It is. And it's wonderful today that we get to rehash it a little bit. Um, uh-huh. So I guess that's kind of a review as we look to the feast and what that means for for them and what it means for us. So, Pastor, I'm ready to go. Are you ready yeah. to go? Yep, sounds great. Let's look into chapter 23 here and look at the feast. All right, so let's open up our Bibles, and we are off. We are reading from the English Standard Version of Holy Scripture, starting in Leviticus chapter 23, and I'll begin with the first 14 verses, um, just to kind of split it up as we go through. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, excuse me, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord Yahweh that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. There are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall not work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord Yahweh in your dwelling place. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which is you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. On the fifteenth day of the same month, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you should present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it, and on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb a year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it will be wine of a fourth of hen, of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh until this same day, until you have brought the offering of our God, your God. It is a statue forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Now, Pastor, we've kind of wet our pout a little bit, and I know basically the whole chapter 23 we could put into one lump sum, but anything you want to highlight as we go halfway through? Sure. I'd, I'd love to bring about that point again of God providing order. Uh, as we look at these first few feasts, uh, we hear a lot of dates and times and seasons, and Remember first, the uh, Israelites were running on a different calendar than what we currently run on, and we won't get into the nuts and bolts of how those differ so much and that sort of thing or when they happen in the year. Uh, But know that there is an order to what God is presenting, and it generally revolves around sevens, whether whether it's, uh, you know, the seventh day or whether it is the seventh month or whether it is a seventh year even in some of those rhythms. So there's this regular orderly rhythm of rest that God builds into our weekly run as well as our yearly run. And it's a rest that we need. Um, 
one other point when we're looking at the Sabbath, uh, I don't know if any of our listeners have been over to Israel at all, but it's pretty amazing to see what that idea of no regular work should be done, uh, how far that's gone. I know when I had an opportunity to go, uh, the coffee machines were not as allowed to be plugged in, and we couldn't press a button for coffee. We had to pull a lever in order to bring out somewhat room temperature coffee into our cups on the Sabbath. And as we look at the scripture here, I love the words at the very uh, end of the first section about the Passover, even of just saying no ordinary work would be done. I mean, our, our circles run so heavily uh, teaching about vocation. And it's beautiful to see where God has said, okay, your regular vocation of uh, your career or that sort of thing, you need rest from that. But you don't need rest from my presence. You don't need rest from your family. You don't need rest from all those sorts of things. There's still a lot of work to be done. It's just not the regular, ordinary, daily grind kind of work. It's more of uh, the work in the relationships that God has brought us into, especially into um, that opportunity to have a place within his presence. Um, And so again, this orderly rhythm that God sets up for us to be in rest in his presence. And that, that goes into clearly the other feasts so far, Feast of First Fruits. I mean, it's just it's just this wonderful order. Passover obviously points us to Jesus celebrating the Passover and to give that rest. I mean, how could you not? Well, I pray for this. I pray that when we do receive the Lord's Supper, when he in, you know on that night when he was betrayed, that we see that as a rest. That we are resting on His grace as we receive His body and blood. So I'm I'm really intrigued by this. Uh, way of thinking, because I think it really does, it's a, definitely a, a thread that goes through all of this, is that when we participate in God's order, um, especially when we look at his grace, there there truly is rest. Anything else before we get to the rest of the feasts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even within these first two feasts, there there's another sense about this that we need to remember, in that these were not feasts that God gave to the priests in order to enact uh, to tell the people what to do necessarily. Mm-hmm. But these are feasts that are upheld by the people. I mean, the Sabbath rest, the weekly Sabbath rest, that's in the home. That's guided by the father of the household. Um, the other feasts that come about are really guided by what the people are bringing into the feast. So God is saying, here is a regular rhythm in which I am going to give you rest but I'm also helping you remember the identity of who you are as my people, uh, giving you an opportunity to give thanks back from all the things that I've given. So when we see that feast of first fruits, it's that opportunity to give thanks to God for what he has given. Uh, The Passover, like you had mentioned, absolutely grounds them in what God had done to redeem them out of Egypt and claim them as his people and give them an identity as his people. And when they would celebrate that, it was not just a nostalgic remembrance, but it was a remembrance and a continuing on in the identity as being God's people, not just the one past event, but how God continues to hold on to his people. And then as we see this on a Sunday morning, and we remember what Christ has done for us, it's not just remembering the fact that he had 
died during Passover and had fulfilled that feast in his time for our benefit, but that we continue to be in what he has done for us. It wasn't just a one-time event, but the continuing benefits that come from that one-time event uh, that continue to shape us as God's people. And one of the real, as you're talking, something I'm thinking about too is this releases us from uh, just knowing information because I think sometimes we equate our faith with how well we know the Bible. So, oh, I know the Bible, and then therefore this. Here, here we're seeing an order, like you said, a, a rest where you're saying, hey, God has this, and here's an order of how we can receive this grace, um, not only in church, but in the home. And we're not talking like that every day you have an hour and a half Bible study and you and your kids know everything about, about the Bible. But this is, goes back to the simplicity of the morning and evening prayer that Luther has given to us, simplicity of the catechism, or the simplicity of reminding, as you said so well, who are you? You're a redeemed child of our Lord Jesus. I mean, that's exactly right. where this all comes together, home, everywhere. What does it ultimately come down to? It comes down to that rest and assurance that we have in Christ. So, Let's keep moving forward. We have a few minutes before our break, but I want to get through, oh my goodness, how far do we want to go? I'm just going to go through, through, through 32 and the rest of these and see what insights you have. Verse 15. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf on the wave offering. You shall count 15 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And you shall, pre- shall present with the bread seven lambs a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd of two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord." And you shall offer one male goat for the sin offering and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. You shall make proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever, all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation. You shall afflict yourselves, you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. You shall not do any work on that very day, for it is the day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever through your generation and your dwelling places. It shall be for you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, shall you keep your Sabbath. 
Now, Pastor, I want to highlight this and I want to get your thoughts. The more I read and think about this rest piece that you have uh, brought before us, is we might think of it as you rest or else kind of mentality, which is, which is clearly there. I'm not denying that. But it kind of reminds me a little bit like on a Mother's Day where you tell your mom or you tell your wife, you cannot do anything today. We're doing all the work. Hmm. Um, or somebody is injured. Like say, uh, uh, I know one of my members had a knee, a knee issue and he had a little surgery and his wife said, you cannot do anything. And he's a very active guy. So it's kind of hard for him. Um, that yeah. right there is you cannot do anything. And it actually ends up being for your good. And if you're smart, you allow yourself to rest. That's what I'm feeling like God is doing here. Is saying, no, you can't do anything. You can't do this. And it's for our good, for the sake of looking to him. Your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I was listening to another conversation on uh, Leviticus as well over the past couple of weeks. And it is very interesting to hear God's words where he says, do nothing and rest in my presence. And oftentimes we just focus on the do. What do I need to do? What can I do? What do I have to do during this rest time? What do I have to do in order to be your child? What do I have to do? And, he's, and we forget the fact that he says, do nothing. I'm doing it. Mm. I mean, if we were to solely focus in on these feasts, it would feel like there's a lot that we have to do. There's a lot of direction that God gives in here. When to have the feast, what to do during the feast, what should be brought during the feast, who should be there at the feast. But lest we forget that he already gave sacrifices that coincide with these feasts to say, here is my created order in a way in which you will be able to be brought into my presence so that you can have rest. Now, if we try and run outside of that order, it doesn't go well. You mentioned Aaron's sons earlier that uh, took their position and abused it and ran into God's presence and died, you know. And in this sense, for these feasts, God is saying, yes, there's rest. And I am telling you to do nothing. Why? So you can remember that I've got you. I've got you taken care of. I'm doing the work for you to be in my presence. I'm doing the work on this day so that you know that you are dependent upon me as your God and that you are my people whom I love and my people whom I bring grace and mercy to. Yeah. Well, let's keep going. Keep going. No, so it, it is this idea, like you were saying, where you're, we are being told to rest for our good so that we don't end up looking like the, uh, especially for the Israelites of that day, so they didn't end up looking like the other pagan religions around them who were working to gain their God's attention. And God is saying, I am already giving you attention, and I am going to show you what it looks like uh, for me to take care of you in every which way, uh, to take your sin away and to take your impurity away so that you can be in my presence. I want to touch on that a little more, especially when we get to the Feast of Booths, which would be um, kind ah. of the uh, icing on the cake, if you will, in this. But right now we need to take our break. We are studying Leviticus chapters 23 and 24 with Pastor Matt Knaus, and we'll be right back. Take a look around you. Look closely. Immigrants in the United States and their U.S.-born children now number about 81 million people, or 26% of the population. So chances are there's someone right in your community who doesn't speak English as a first language. 
and who doesn't know Jesus. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation can help by providing you with free Lutheran books translated into over 90 languages. See their complete list of catechisms and Bible storybooks at lhfmissions.org. And welcome back. We are studying Leviticus chapters 23 and 24 with Pastor Matt Knaus of, of Community Lutheran Church in Escondido and San Marcos, California. Now, Pastor, I want to ask this right now before we get to the Feast of Booths. Where is Escondido and San Marcos, California? Escondido and San Marcos are in the north portion of San Diego County. Oh, so there you go. we are. Yeah, so we are in the southern part of the state and uh, in a county that's really quite large. Uh, that's beautiful most of the year. Most of the year, absolutely. And that's a, it's a beautiful place. Uh, my wife and I love to go to San Diego. And uh, when you say Escondido and San Marcos, especially for uh, many of our guests, uh, we have listeners from around the world that, where is that in California? Because to me, it may as well be, you know, San Francisco, because I don't, you know, I don't go to, I'm not from California. I don't know anything about it. So it's a beautiful area sure. and uh, we love that area. Yeah, we could say it this way. We're about uh, 35 miles north of San Diego mm -hmm. and a several hundred miles uh, south of San Francisco. There you go. That's a better perspective. <laughs> That's a good perspective. <laughs> so, Pastor, here's what I want to do with Leviticus 23 is I want to finish the chapter and I know that you have some thoughts on the whole comprehensiveness of the whole thing. And obviously, Feast of Booths is kind of that icing on the cake. So I'll read the rest until verse 44, and we'll, we'll come back and get some themes. So verse 33. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, on the seven days, is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation. For presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings, each on its own proper day. Besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your freewill offerings, which you give to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. You shall take on the first day of the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in the booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generation may know that I have made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. I would say, Pastor, that Feast of Booths is one of those that I probably know the least of. And so, um, not to try to go too far into that, but when you look at everything, we have 
right at the end, Feast of Booths. What's happening there? So you don't regularly celebrate this with your congregation? No, we don't. Uh, maybe they do in California, oh, but not uh, in Minnesota. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, when we talk about the Passover and when we talk about the Feast of First Fruits, when we think of Pentecost and when we look at the Feast of Weeks and all that kind of stuff, we can kind of wrap our head around that. Even the Day of Atonement, we can mm-hmm. wrap our head around that. Feast of Booths really doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Remember then that this feast is one to maintain the identity of the people. Uh, even as the Lord spoke to Moses, and he says, this is so your generations would know who I am as the one who had carried your people through a land to bring them into a settled place. And it's interesting you know, that he continues to have them remember this by essentially going camping. Right. And that's actually how... You know, that's how God spent his time with his people as well. Remember the tabernacle that he ordered the design of to be this portable temple place uh, was also a big tent. It was a big booth. Uh, And so for us at this point, we really don't look at that feast of booths anymore. Yet I think we can get a sense of what the people felt anytime we do go camping. Because when we go camping, things are a little bit harder. Um, well, unless you've got a big RV and you take all of the gear and you basically make a portable house, mm-hmm. you know, but for those that go out into the mountains and take very little with them, you get a sense of how easy it is on the normal day today, but how much we really do rely upon God's providence in order for us to live each day. Uh, a beautiful thing about the Feast of Booths actually comes in Jesus's day. So this is a feast that was obviously well celebrated, and uh, it was a feast. What I learned also in looking through Leviticus, there's just a couple of feasts that take a few days. It takes about a week. Hmm. There's one in the spring and one in the fall. And the Feast of Booths, as I remember, is in the fall. And the feasts that take a few days were so that people could um, migrate and move towards Jerusalem. Uh, which was kind of interesting to me. And then this one in particular with the Feast of Booths, as the folks are in Jerusalem, a custom had developed to where they would bring water from the Pool of Siloam, which was down uh, just south of the temple, Mm -hmm. and they would bring water up from there to pour on the altar. Okay, And then the other thing that they would do is on the last great day of the feast, they would light a huge menorah in the temple area. So you had this big, bright light, and you had a bunch of water. If we go to John's gospel, we see Jesus at two moments during this feast proclaim who he is in fulfilling that feast. So on the last day of bringing all of the water up at the end of the Feast of Booths, and they have this great grand day going, he stands up where all the water has been brought. He says, you want living water? Yes, God brought you living water out of the rock, but I am the living water. I'm the one that will provide for you in ways in which this water can never do. And then he also does it at the great day of that feast when they light the big menorah, and he says, I am the light of the world. I'm the one that is showing you who God is for you. And so he breaks them out of just what had happened into what he was presently doing and what he was going to continue to do for his people as he was the one that fulfills those feasts in their perfection and in their entirety. 
how could you not see all those connections? You know, I am the light of the world. I am the, you know, the living water um, language that's used. And like you said, it, it's, it's a little bit, you know, a little bit of a joke, but there's a truth to that. When you go out to camp, you get a better understanding of how things work <laughs> and how they don't yeah. work if you're, if you're a true <laughs> camper and you get, you're able to see things you can't normally see. And so they, they were closer to Jerusalem, understanding more of God's grace and understanding of what it was like in essence of, of, of the Israelites who wandered in the desert and had to depend on the Lord. I mean, it, it really is. That's a great insight for us to look at. So, Pastor, we've gone through all the feasts. Like you said, some are one day, some are seven days. They're, they're there for order. They're there for peace. They're or, or there for rest, for us to understand our relationship with the Lord and rest. Anything else you want to highlight before we get to chapter 24? You know, as we look at Jesus, the, the one thing that I want to really highlight is you'll hear folks from outside the church and sometimes within inside the church every now and then when they wrestle with it and they'll say, you know, J- Jesus never claimed to be God. He was a good teacher. He was this, he was that, but he never claimed to be God. Until you start listening to what he says and when he says it and where he says it. And I think this moment at the Feast of Booths, as it's um, relayed in John's Gospel, is very much one of those moments where everybody is saying, this is a feast that God ordered. This is a feast that uh, we celebrate pointing to what God has done for us. And then Jesus stands in the midst of it and says, this is all about me. In that very moment, claiming his Godhood for the benefit of his people, for the good of his people. And though he may not have uttered the words, I am God, by his actions and his uh, fulfillment in the midst of these feasts that nobody else in their right mind would do. He very much claimed to be the one that all of those feasts were pointing towards. And as we look at that, we get even more of that, I would argue, in chapter 24, more imagery of what Jesus says about himself and I mean, it's that, you know, it's that, it's that, it's that, uh, what do you call it? The, um, drop mic moment of Jesus. You know, he reads the old Testament in the, in the, uh, um, the synagogue and, and rolls it back up and says, those words are fulfilled. I mean, it's just a, <laughs> it's just totally one of those drop mic moments. He's like, all right, it's done. Here it is. I finished. I did right. it. And, and they're kind of like, well, wait a second here, you know, then what am I supposed to do? And I think there's a reference of this uh, when the bondage of the will, you know, when Luther is arguing and, and there was kind of this moment in that whole argument of, okay, how much free will do we have as human beings? And someone basically asked, um, so if we can't do anything for our salvation, what good are we? And then there's kind of that moment like, okay, now, now we can begin our work. Now we can start talking. (laughs) Now, now we can actually see God because we take ourselves out of the equation. And that's what Jesus does with this. He says, by the way, that was all about me. Then we can finally see God's grace because we're out of the equation. Any thoughts before we move on? Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. You know, the moment somebody comes to the realization that they can do nothing for their salvation, you get to just kind of smile and say, you're right. (laughs) <laughs> and it leaves people in a quandary, exactly. you know, <laughs> leaves me in a quandary. Let's be honest. It leaves me like, well, wait a second here. What does that mean for us? And that opens yeah. up a floodgate of the, the need for grace in everything that we do. It means you finally get to rest. Absolutely. Oh, there it, it is. You don't have oh. to work on your salvation anymore. It means you finally get to rest and receive from God. Wow. 
Well, let's keep moving and receive more of this rest today. And we are now in chapter 24. We are plowing through a lot of verses here, so just bear with us. And once again, we continue to see Christ. We'll begin with verses 1 through 16. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring your pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It should be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. You know what, Pastor, I'm going to stop there because I can't help but think about my home congregation. I grew up in Wadena, Minnesota, when they had an eternal light right above the lectern where often the word of God is read. And there was that eternal light there. And the light was supposedly never to go out. Of course, there's times it did go out, but that's that's not the point. Um, but it reminds <laughs> it me of usually that. usually on Thursday. Yeah. It would go out on Thursday, <laughs> yeah, but right. then light again for Sunday. It was, it was, okay, so it was okay Saturday <laughs> night when the altar guild came back. But, um, <laughs> right. but anyway, so that kind of points me to this. I wanted to stop and just reflect on it a little bit. What, what are your thoughts on the lamps? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing is, I hope our hearers are hearing through this is God has a lot of clarity in how he speaks. I mean, there's no confusion on how he wants people to uh, respect and honor him in the midst of these feasts and what they're to do. I mean, he's giving them absolute details on what to do. So first off, as we think of this light, even think of that eternal light that's in your sanctuary. um, What is, what good does that light actually do? do for you when you're not there you know it it really doesn't do anything i mean most folks aren't walking along the church grounds and looking through the windows and saying oh good the light's still going you know Mm -hmm. yet in the midst of this tabernacle setting you see when this light was burning no one was really in that space the priests weren't in that space and for the most part the people were asleep And this is God's house that we're talking about in this tabernacle, and God certainly didn't need that light. Um, So in the midst of that time and that light burning, we see that God was simply having people do this to remind them that God was present in the darkness. I mean, they may not have actually seen it, and they were usually sleeping while it was going on, But nonetheless, that God said, look, you're going to light this light and you're going to trust the priest that I have set up to light this light. And you're going to bring the oil in here so that this light would keep going so that while you sleep, you know that I'm still present with you. Should you wake up in the middle of the night and you look towards the tabernacle and you see the faint glow of things coming out of the tabernacle? It's just a little reminder for you to let you know that I'm still present. I'm still here. I haven't left you. I'm not distant. And in the darkest of moments, my light continues to carry on. That is so good. I mean, I think about as a, as a father and, and as you as a father, there's nights where my children would not be able to sleep well. And uh, one particular child is one of those that you go in, maybe lay on the, the floor by them. And then when they're falling asleep, they wake up quick and they look and say, Dad, are you still there? And there's always kind of reminders, and a lot of times you have a night light or those kind of things. I mean, it's just a small glimpse of that exact thing that you just presented to us is, am I alone here? And that light in, in, in this area reminded them, no, you're not. 
And that's why when Jesus right. says, I'm the light of the world, um, in him there is no darkness at all. I, I love that hymn. Um, uh, I want to walk as a child of the light. I mean, it just reminds us in it from child on, we understand that desire to not be alone. And the lamps show us that. What, what a gift. Anything a- else on that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, John 8, John 9, I am the light of the world. Uh, you know, the Lord is a lamp unto my feet and a guide unto my path. Yeah. Um, you know, and that, yeah, in him there is no dark. I mean, it always makes me wonder. I, I know in the new creation, I know when everything is restored and redeemed and God's presence is back in the midst of his creation in which we're walking around again and everything's working perfectly for his order and the, the sun and stars and everything I would imagine would keep going. But will there be shadows? Right. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it would make sense that there are, but you know, God works things out in a pretty amazing way. Right. So just that pure light of Christ that we can fully trust in, in our darkest moments to know that he is not gone from us, but ever present with us. That there'll be no need for the sun because the Lord will be our light. And as the hymn says, in him there will be no there you dark- go. in him there'll be no darkness at all. This is four hundred eleven. I want to walk as a child of the light, and and there you're right. Would there be a shadow? Because guess what? Shadow was darkness. I don't know. I'll tell you this. No, uh, it doesn't matter. But that's right. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this. What you should do, uh, Pastor uh, Knaus is a, a pastor with another one of our guests here quite often. A thy strong word is Pastor Bob Hiller. So my challenge to you. Pastor Knaus is to ask <laughs> Pastor Hiller what does he think, and then to bring it back a two-page report, and, and we'll present it to him the next time he's on. About, you present it to us. Excuse me. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I will look and see if he is up for that. <laughs> All right. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Let's move on in chapter twenty-four. Um, and I want to just read now that I'm I'm looking at this more clearly. I just want to read bread for the tabernacle portion here for until verse nine. You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, a piles of six and a, a... How do you say that? Pile? Pile. I don't know. Yeah. I think yeah. so, pile. On the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile. And it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since for it is for him a most holy portion of the Lord's offering, a perpetual due. So now we get from light to bread. What are your thoughts, and what does that connect us to? Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing we need to look at as we look at all of these feats, And then now, especially in 24, there's this continual progression towards a closer presence to God. So these three sections that we look at in 24, we're looking at oil in the lamps, that's kind of in the sanctuary area. And now we're at the bread of the presence, which is actually in God's presence, even closer to the Holy of Holies. And then we'll ultimately get to God's name, you know, even closer to God. So as we look at this bread of the presence, uh, it's not made holy by the people, but it's brought from the people as a thank offering. Remember, as we look at these uh, sacrifices and offerings that God orders and designs, you can look at the blood sacrifices and animal sacrifices 
as things that needed to be done for the impurity and the sin of the people. Okay, life had to be shed in order for life to be given. And then as we look at the grain offerings and drink offerings, they're almost ultimately towards thanks and praise for the things that God has given. And so it's giving back from the things that God has already given to us. And as we look at this bread of the presence, this bread that God certainly doesn't need to eat, right? Um, but the priests do. And so it's this bread made holy by being in the presence of God. And then God turns it right over to the priests so that they can eat it. Uh, and as we look at that, it's actually a very reverse setup from the pagan cultures. Okay, Most of the pagan cultures looked at their gods at gods that needed sustenance or needed something from them. And God's saying, I don't need anything from you. But these people that I've set up in order to be mediators between you and me, they need something. And so that they would remain ultimately pure, I am going to make even their food holy. And so God is the host of even that meal there for his priests and for his people. And so we see the light and the bread that are set out, are set out for the benefit of the people. Uh, even Jesus, again, we're going to go back to John's gospel, John chapter 6, uh, in 35 and 48, they're having this discussion about bread. And Jesus points them to David. Didn't you even know what David did when he went in and took the bread of the presence? Like, this was a meal that was set out for the benefit of the people, not for the benefit of God. And ultimately, it was set out for the benefit of the priests so that they would have something to eat, but even they were part of the people still, too. So throughout all of it, God remains the host and doing something for the benefit of the people through light and through bread. Wow. You get that language of, you know, he not only is the, uh, um, he's our guest, but he's also the host. And so here he is mm -hmm. laying that out. We're laying that out. We think it's all about our action when he's laying it out for us. And Jesus, I am the bread of life. I mean, it just goes back to, back to Christ as well and gets us closer to God himself. A reminder to our listeners, as we speak about where we are now, we're talking about the Holy of Holies, the, the tent of meeting, um, the tabernacle, which on page 139 of the Lutheran Study Bible gives you a great visual for that. I'm, I'm one of those that when I just read it, I can't get it, but I see a picture, all of a sudden it all comes together, which is why I like books with pictures. Um, and so this reminder is you <laughs> see that. Too. And you can literally see how you have the light and then you have the bread, and it's just that little bit closer to the presence of God. And that was a great, a great point you have there, Pastor. Here's what I'm going to do. We have about five minutes left here. I'm going to read the rest, and I want you to be able to highlight what you want to highlight because there's some good stuff in here, but also it takes a change away from just kind of saying, here's some of that order to punishment and making sure that things are in order So, um, in our daily walk with him. So verse 10 all the way to the end of chapter 24. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomith, the daughter of Debri, and the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord shall be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. 
Whoever blasphemed the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes the animal's life shall make its good life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, that I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out the camp, the one who cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, there's an obvious turn here, Pastor, kind of from a nice, you know, give me oil in my lamp, keep it burning, 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 to some very serious realities of sin. That for them, there was stoning, there's eye for eye, there's a reality of the sin that needs, um, well, needs forgiveness, needs atonement. So what's happening in these, uh, towards the end of this chapter? We have about three minutes left in our time. All right, you got it. So first off, that idea of the lex talionis or the eye for an eye law is not new at this point in Scripture. It had been around in Mesopotamia. So this is something that the people were aware of from mm. times previous. And then also, as we look at this progression towards God's presence, we had been looking at a progression into the temple. Now, his name is something that went far out beyond the uh, tabernacle or temple, You know, depending on what time frame we're looking at here. Uh, in Leviticus, it's the tabernacle, of course, like you mentioned. And so this name is carried out in and amongst the people every single day. And so abuse of that name is absolutely something that was not supposed to happen. Just as Aaron's sons abused their position and the space of God's holy space, here we see the serious consequences for abusing God's name. Now, we don't stone people out in the streets anymore, anything like that. Um, the other point, too, before we jump too much further, this was an abuse that could be done by either an Israelite or the sojourner in their land. This name was for everybody to be used properly and not improperly. Now, we, like I said, we don't stone people for the misuse of God's name, but when there is serious offense in a church and a serious um, uh, push back against God's gifts and about what Jesus has done, we do have a way in which we handle that it's called excommunication. You remove people from God's closest presence that he brings to us through Jesus's body and blood and the bread and wine by saying, you know what, you're in a dangerous position misusing the gifts that God has given you. And for your good, we need to separate you from that for a bit with the ultimate goal of reconciliation. And as we wrap this whole thing up, getting back to Jesus, uh, Jesus pointed towards not judgment of each person, but a positive reconciliation, a positive retaliation in hopes of pointing enemies of God back to God's mercy. As Jesus came and died for the sins of the whole world, he points us out in a way to be able to speak into their lives God's love for them through Christ. And people will reject that. But it's not up to us to push them even further and just let them go, but really continue to reach out to them, continue to speak God's word of love and grace and mercy into their life, continue to show them that the church loves them and wants them in the community of the church, because we see that 
through what God has done for us through Jesus. God did not just leave us in his judgment, but actually did something about it to bring us back into his presence. So we always want people to be in that presence of God. Sometimes for their own good, we have to separate them from a small portion of it. But we never want to separate them from God's word that speaks Jesus into their lives. As he says, uh, come to all me who are are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Pastor Matt Canals of Community Lutheran Church in Escondido and San Marcos, California, giving us God's strong word from Leviticus 23 and 24. Pastor Canals, thank you again for the gifts. Thank you for the opportunity. Saints of our Lord, we look at the Lord today and we receive what he promises, rest. For in him there is no darkness at all. We see that he is the bread of life. He is the great high priest. He is the final atonement. He is all of this, and it is not an eye for an eye because he has taken it all upon himself. For this we rest, and we pray that the rest of that you may find rest and peace in our Lord Jesus. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands. <music>